When Death Comes by Judith Klimos When death comes, it is not convenient or better or easy. It doesn't come with manners, etiquette, or rules to follow. It doesn't come bringing a gold-leafed invitation you can decline. It comes with surgical steel precision dissecting your life. Death may come in the quiet of night with a crash. It may come at high noon with a silent breath. It may be welcomed like a soft bed of blankets after a long journey. It may be as disagreeable as a bed of nails. Death comes without explanation, justification, or reason. It comes without being fair or just or reversible. It comes without your permission, approval, or acceptance. It comes without an undo button or an option to refuse delivery. When death comes, it cares not what God you do or do not believe in. Whether you went to temple, church, mosque, or Sunday brunch, it cares not what's in your bank account or on your to-do list. It certainly cares not whether you are ready. When grief comes, it comes ripping shreds of flesh from emotional bones, filling them with marrow of sorrow. It cares not how many birthdays you've had, nor how many degrees hang on your wall. Grief comes bringing unbelievable pain and intolerable numbness. It comes bringing more questions than answers. It may come as a gentle wave on the shore or as a tidal wave tossing you under and over. Grief comes without respect to place or time or status. It wreaks havoc with equilibrium and motivation. It causes doubt, isolation, and disorientation. It is unilaterally deaf to desperate pleas for mercy. When grief comes, it comes without kindness or compassion. It cares not that you are overflowing with it and unable to breathe. It cares not that it brands epitaphs on your heart. It cares only that it change you forever. Welcome to the Death Witch Podcast a podcast that covers anything and everything, dying, death, grief, and bereavement. The title of The Death Witch is a play on several things, a tongue-in-cheek play on the terms death watch and having a death wish while tapping into my more mystical side. The Death Witch podcast hopes to be one of your favorites to turn for inspiration, comfort, education, and guidance as we move back towards a culture of understanding death as a companion to life rather than an enemy. The Death Witch is a place to talk about death in a positive, inspiring, and sacred way with perhaps a little gallows humor thrown in. I am Judith Klimos, your host, but you can call me Jade. I am without a doubt eclectic. If I had to use a bucket label to describe myself and my services, 
it would be transition support specialists. And in that bucket would be labels like end of life, sacred attendant, interfaith, spiritual advisor, intuitive energy healing master, social worker, and author. No matter the label, my goal is to use my education and experience to assist people making all sorts of transitions in their lives with the least amount of suffering. The death witch is in, so let's listen to today's episode. Welcome to this episode of The Death Witch, Children and Death. I'm not sure which is more uncomfortable for parents to talk to their kids about, death or sex. But I started talking to my daughter about both when she was four years old. And boy, did I catch a lot of hell for that. Everyone has an opinion on when to talk to your kids about sex or death and they act like their concern is for the child's welfare what I've learned is that it's nothing more than their own discomfort regarding those topics that has them have their strong opinions so today I explore the many aspects of children and death some do's and don'ts and a lot of stories now the death witch is in so let's listen As you know by now, as a child, I did not have the luxury of death denial. Death woke me up with a bang in the middle of the night at the age of three when my father was thrown out of his bed and onto the floor. The noise woke me up, and like every daddy's little girl, I went to find him. I discovered him on the floor in a tangle of bed sheets, and I tried to wake him up. Not seeing my mother, I went to my grandmother's room and woke her up saying something's wrong with daddy. It was 1968 and you had one phone, maybe two, and they were attached to the wall. Ours was in the kitchen and that's where my mother was calling for the ambulance. My mother told me that I didn't speak for days and that I wouldn't say goodbye to anyone at the funeral. My mom never talked to me about it. Ever, though on occasion we would pull out our box of memories and look through it together. But it wasn't until after she was dead and I published my book, Strongest in Our Broken Places, that my aunt told me that no one knew I found him that night. In a letter my mother wrote to her brother living in Brazil, she said that I saw the rescue workers taking him out of the house on the gurney. I feel like if she'd known I'd seen him, if I, that I'd found him, she would have written that. On his death certificate, it says coronary thrombosis, but my mother always said it was a brain aneurysm, so I'm not really sure what to believe, especially since I do remember my mother saying the coroner refused to do an autopsy, saying it wouldn't bring him back. At least that was her takeaway from it. I assume that because my mother didn't know I found my father and tried to wake him up is why I never got counseling. Or maybe back then doing counseling for children wasn't a thing. I don't know, but I will tell you that it set the tone for my whole life. And I think at some point someone needed to help me understand that. 
You also know that I was six in 1971 at the time of my mother's terrible car accident when my Aunt Agnes was killed. That one was rough, and I remember nothing about it at all. My mother was in a coma and had no part in my aunt's funeral at all. In fact, she couldn't even attend it. I really don't know anything except that that Thanksgiving morning, my aunt and my mother went out, and neither came home that day. My aunt never came home, and my mother came home a different person. And I was nine in 1974 when my uncle was staying with us while visiting from Brazil, where he was stationed as a missionary priest, and he died of an aortic aneurysm in our home. This time, my mother, thinking she was protecting us, sent my sister and I to the next-door neighbors so we wouldn't see what was going on. However, I had heard through the vents. My parents were screaming my uncle's name to wake up. I already knew what death was. There was no protection. The interesting thing about this death is that for divine reason, the summer before, my uncle had taken me on a walk of the grounds of the Villa Redeemer, where we had our family reunions. During this walk, we came upon the cemetery, and he casually mentioned that this is where he would be buried when he died. When my parents were planning his funeral, I remember coming into the kitchen and overhearing them discussing, in sort of a frantic state, where he was going to be buried. It was at this time I told them what Uncle Jerry had told me just six months prior. In a weird way, that made me feel important. I never really understood my uncle and felt he favored my sister more since she was named after him. But this made me feel important to him like he'd selected me to carry this message into the future. So in the span of six years, at the ages of three, six, and nine, I suffered great traumatic death losses. Not only were these significant people who died, but the circumstances around them was traumatic as well. Did I really have any other choice other than to go into death work? I had a death-adjacent trauma also at the age of 12, when a drunk driver hit the tree in front of our house, bounced off and slammed into the corner of the house where my parents' bedroom was, nearly missing the gas meter. To me, it seemed like death possibility was literally around every corner. It was clear to me that life is not to be taken for granted, that inexplicably things can change at a moment's notice when people are suddenly taken from you. As a professional, I have supported grieving grandchildren and children quite often in my work, but rarely did I have children as patients. Hospice and children just isn't something they did very often then. Everything I know about children and grief, though, I learned from Kyle. I was pregnant with my daughter while working in hospice when Kyle became a patient. Kyle was five. And because I was pregnant, my supervisor wanted to know if I would be okay handling this case before she assigned it to me. I was not about to let my pregnancy get in the way of my job. Kyle was a gift. He was truly something special. His parents said that at about the age of two, he started saying he would not be here long. That his time on earth was going to be short because he had other things to do. His parents initially dismissed his remarks as fantasy. 
However, when Kyle was diagnosed, his words took on new meaning for them, and they knew he'd been preparing them. Kyle clearly verbalized his vision of life and its meaning. He had a portrait of what he believed the other side of the veil was like and why he was only here for a short time. To tell you that I honored this boy as if he were the Dalai Lama sitting in front of me would not be an overstatement. I allowed him to guide me to what he might need from me. Kyle's parents also took their lead from Kyle. They took his lead when making treatment decisions and when to stop those treatments. They took his lead in how to help him through this too. Kyle was at his best when he was teaching someone, when he was sharing with someone. He didn't need a social worker, but he enjoyed talking with me to share with me his wisdom for my own child and for the other children I might be a social worker for. Kyle was the best teacher I could ever have regarding how to be with not just a child who is dying, but anyone who is dying. Always take their lead. Answer any question they have with the truth. Talk when they want you to talk. Listen when they talk. And never stop laughing. As a parent, I took what Kyle taught me and what I knew of from my own life, and I used that as a guide in raising my daughter. I never shielded her from death. In fact, I made her a witness to it. She was four years old when I started bringing her to work with me to visit my hospice patients. As a young social worker, people at the end of their lives were interested in the new life I was raising, but I didn't take her to just any and all of my patients. I only took her to my patients who lived in nursing facilities, the ones who barely got visitors at all, much less children. I always allowed Emma to make her own decisions on whether or not she would engage with a person. I allowed her to watch as I interacted with this person so she could see that because they might look scary, there was nothing I was afraid of. She saw me hold their hand, caress their cheek to wipe a tear, and to listen to them. I always invited her to come up to the bed with me, but she'd often hang back initially, standing against the wall at the foot of the bed. I always introduced her to my patient and asked permission if it was okay for her to be there when possible. Then I conducted my visit without putting any pressure on Emma to join. Eventually, she'd come up to the bed and hold the person's hand or offer them a Kleenex. Or if the patient was verbal, they would engage her, which would enable her to move closer. Sometimes she wasn't even ready to leave when I was finished with my visit so I would sit and do paperwork until the two of them were finished. One time, I had conducted a visit with a woman who was in a common area near the nurse's station. She was a new patient who was nonverbal, or so we thought. During my visit, she made eye contact with me but didn't respond at all. When I finished at her side, I went to the nurse's station to document my visit. Emma wanted to continue to sit with her. I was talking with the nurse who was telling me that the patient had been there about six months and had pretty much been like this since she arrived. And then we heard Emma singing. She was just singing the alphabet song, but still it melted our hearts until we heard a second voice singing with her. This woman who had not said a word in six months to anyone was now singing with my four-year-old daughter, clear as day. 
We were a puddle of tears and the whole common room was watching them. My decision to bring Emma to work with me met with some resistance. I caught a lot of flack from one nurse in particular. She was an older woman who wasn't really fond of me in the first place, or maybe she just wasn't fond of social workers. I'm not sure, but we did seem to butt heads. She was the kind that comes off super sweet to your face, and then suddenly you're blindsided by something she says or does behind your back. She was an old school nurse, as was our director, so she had her ear. In order to establish this as a legitimate program, I developed procedures and protocols and created the Junior Volunteers program for our hospice. While my director initially okayed my program, I would occasionally find myself in a new debate about it. The last one, she actually brought this snide nurse in so she could voice her concerns herself. While she said she had concerns for the long-term effects on my daughter, I knew her real issue was that she simply viewed it as a special treatment that I got to bring my child to work with me instead of putting her in childcare on certain days. But I had thought through my decision to bring her quite thoroughly, and with my own personal experience, I convinced my director once and for all, and I never had to ha have another conversation about it. The patients and their families reacted positively to the program, and I had no qualms at all about the long-term effects on Emma. What I couldn't know then, and I wish I knew where those nurses are today, so I could give them sort of a giant, see, I told you so, is that Emma's experience would prepare her for the worst time of her life. Emma was barely an adult at the age of 22 when her father died of stage 4 lung cancer. Her years of witnessing and attending to the dying made her less afraid to be at her father's side during his dying journey. Because he was married to someone else, I wasn't able to be there on site to help her through this, so her childhood experience and FaceTime with me was all she had to go on. She was able to identify when he was intermittently leaving his body for visits to the other side. She was able to know something was going on when he was staring at the left corner of the ceiling. She was able to understand not to force him to eat and to allow him whatever joys he asked for. She didn't panic when she saw him decline faster and faster. She didn't hesitate to lay in the bed with him. She was able to be there for him in a way that no one else could be. She was also well prepared to manage her feelings. I shiver to think what it might have been like for her otherwise because she did take it very, very hard. However, those memories of her caring for her father are what bring her comfort today. Teaching children how to be with others as they decline is the best gift we can give them. They grow up realizing that life is precious, and while it won't keep them from making bad decisions, they do have a greater capacity to understand the gravity of some of those bad decisions. So here's my do's and don'ts list. Do share information in real time with any child who lives in the home. Even if you're just going for diagnostic tests, if you're anxious, your child will pick up on it. Share with them that you found something unusual in your body and are just going to have the doctors check it out. If the child does not live in the home, then it is possible for you to wait until you have more definitive information. But if they start to ask about things, that's your cue to share the information. Don't try to hide the truth or protect the child. 
Children are experts on picking up on energy and often create terrifying horror stories in their minds to explain that energy when they are told that everything is fine. Do answer your child's questions with age-appropriate truth and allow them to ask as many questions as they need. Use real words and not euphemisms. Don't answer more than what is asked. Don't try to sugarcoat it. Don't just say someone is sick because plenty of people get sick and do not die. Your child will get sick one day and they will be afraid they will die. I like to use the analogy that sometimes a toy breaks and it can be repaired and other times it breaks and cannot be repaired. So you say things like, this time grandpa's body can't be repaired. Do allow your child to participate in care of the dying person whenever possible. Give them small tasks to do depending on their age. Say things like, it's your job to make sure grandma's water pitcher has cold, fresh water in it. Can you do that every day? This gives them a sense of purpose and feeling useful. It also encourages them to nurture another human being. Don't leave them at home when you, you visit a loved one in a nursing home. Make the visits shorter to accommodate for a child's attention span, but take them with you and allow them to bring some joy to your loved one. It should go without saying, but if the patient is unable to care for themselves, do not leave them alone with anyone under the age of 18. The guide I use here is if the patient cannot be left alone, they cannot be left alone with a minor. And to further clarify, a patient can't be left alone if they would need assistance to evacuate a building that's on fire. Do allow your child to express their emotions and share their fears. Avoid using phrases like don't cry, don't worry, or be brave. Don't ever say that's enough now. There's never enough grief expression. Don't tell your child what to feel. Definitely don't tell a child they'll get over it. Do freely express your own emotions in front of your child. It is helpful for children to see healthy grieving. This is especially important for dads or father figures to boys. Art society tends to stifle the expression of men. So seeing you not being ashamed of crying is a big win for a little man in the making. Don't ever say you're the man of the house now in cases where a boy's father has died. Don't ever say take care of your mother now son to a minor child. It is not, nor is it ever, a minor child's place to be responsible for a parent's well-being. Don't say you need to be strong for your sisters or brothers. Do follow your child's lead. Invite them to do things and honor their acceptance or declination of that invitation. Don't force them to do anything. If they are not comfortable hugging someone or holding their hand, don't make an issue of it. If they come up with an idea for the patient, say yes in whatever way you can say yes, even if the idea is ridiculous. A child might say, for instance, let's take dad to Disney World to see Mickey Mouse, then he'll feel better. Your response should be just as creative. Oh, dad does love Disney World. You're right. Let's get out our old photo albums and share them with dad. It'll be like we're right there again. Or maybe in this day and age, maybe your photo albums are on a device and you can have them printed out and have your child make a hard copy photo album. 
The most important thing is that you're validating your child's participation and encouraging them to engage. You're also building your self-esteem at the same time. Do listen to what your child is or is not saying. Children have a wisdom about grief. They don't stay in it for long periods of time. They might cry a while and then want to go out and play with a friend. Allow them this autonomy. It is part of their healing process. Don't ever interrupt or cut your child off. This is no time for children to be seen but not heard. Do share your belief system with your child, but use the words dying, dead, died, and death. These concrete words help process grief. Things not to say to children. Daddy's in a better place. There is no better place for daddy than to raise his child. Mommy went to sleep. This will ensure the child has issues sleeping because they won't want to die. Jesus took daddy to be in heaven. This sets Jesus up to be a sinister fellow who kidnapped daddy and could come back at any time to kidnap the child or the remaining living parent. Instead, you can say things like, Daddy died and his heart went to live with Jesus. This will work for younger children who don't yet grasp the concept of the soul. Do allow your child to participate fully in whatever memorial rite you practice. They can read a poem, choose a song, sing a song, pick or pick a flower arrangement. Don't assume they're too young to understand. Don't force them to do what they are not comfortable doing. Do let them up on the bed with your loved one if your loved one wants that. Don't force either the child or the patient to do anything they're resistant to. In general, if you teach your child the truth about dying and death, it will help their grieving process. You won't always do or say the right thing, so it's important to be able to admit when you've made a mistake and correct it. Children learn so much by watching us, so they too will learn the value of owning their mistakes and making things right. It's never too early to introduce children to death. As you can see from my own story, you can never be sure what lay ahead. So taking early opportunities like the death of a pet to educate and introduce kids to death is a smart move. Besides which, children are bright lights on the planet and their loving light is needed by their elders who are transitioning. Helping children understand death as a part of life enables them to lay the foundation to deal with their own mortality in a healthy way. Thank you for listening to the Death Witch Podcast. I do hope that something of today spoke to your heart and gets you thinking more about death as a part of life. This podcast is listener supported. If you care to support the production costs, simply click support on our page. The content of this podcast is the expressed experience and opinions of the host, Jade Klimos, and those of the guests of the podcast. It is not meant to constitute counseling or direction, nor is it meant to be a substitute for professional advice. Reference to any specific product or entity does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by the host. The views expressed by guests are their own, and their appearance on the program 
does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent.